What's up, everybody? Let's spin some yarn. Uh, this is going to be a accompaniment to all of the teaching to the Creed episodes, but uh, I'll put a link in the description of the episode that it's it needs to be linked for, uh, and I think I discuss it in a few others, but it's just so good that I wanted to do a standalone spin the yarn where I read the entire content of this. I will probably stop a little bit here and there as I go uh, to discuss some of it, but what it is is... A uh, article from the 1918 Blue Jackets manual called A Short Talk with Chief Petty Officers. Um, I actually have a 1916 Blue Jackets manual on my shelf, and the exact same article appears there. So I don't know when it originated exactly, but it was 1916 or prior. And uh, it, it's part of the Teaching of the Creed curriculum to link to this article uh, and read and discuss it. And uh, the when it came up, I was doing... Uh, an episode that's, I mean, it'll be released after this, but it was with the NSW tech who appeared in episode 41. It's called the glass is half full. Um, and so we did a teaching to the creed topic called credibility of a chief. And I thought it would be perfect to have a, a junior sailor on, which, I mean, he's not that junior. He's been around for a while. This is probably his last duty station and he's a, but he's a first class petty officer that is board eligible for chief. So I thought he was the perfect person to talk to about the credibility of chiefs. Um, it just seemed like that that would be the good discussion mate, basically. So we were talking about it, and when I read, well, we both read it, the article itself independently, but when we discussed the article itself and the content of it, and uh, did it align, align with like the Sailor's Creed, the Chief Petty Officer's Creed, etc., we got to the end of the article where there's five summary bullet points that uh, we both sort of agreed. We're, I mean, probably a great start, at least, of a, a revision to the Chief Petty Officer's Creed. And I, I talk about this a lot, and I don't want it to come off as that I'm attacking the Chief's Creed or that I think it's like this completely horrible, inadequate document that needs to be blown up and recreated. It's not what I mean when I talk about it at all, but I do think there's some some content in there that probably shouldn't be in there. Uh, the line about exalted and privilege and stuff like that. there's a couple of things that I just feel like are out of place. Uh, and I, I found that as I discuss it, I, a lot of chiefs kind of feel the same way. Um, but also it just the way that it is written feels like there's, there's room for interpretation and there's just these vague areas that were, were left to interpret or kind of figure out or navigate where I feel like it should be a lot more decisive, a lot more definitive in guiding the principles that the chief's mess is built upon. I, I think it's too important to be vague. So it's something I, I like talking about. And, and this article kind of stoked that topic quite a bit. Um, so I'm going to start reading this and I just, I'm going to stop and discuss as, as we go. But uh, again, like I, it's just too good not to share. And I highly recommend checking it out. If you Google, a short talk with Chief Petty Officers. There'll be a link to goatlocker.org that has the uh, content of the 1918 version of the article. Uh, I am going to eventually transcribe this and put it up on dguspodcast.com as well so that uh, there's another, just another resource out there in the event that, because it, it, as far as I could tell, it was the only one I could, the only link I could find that worked that had the exact content I was looking for. So, uh, so paragraph one, 
Part four of the Blue Jackets manual is written as a general guide for chief petty officers. It should be regarded more in the light of an index as to what chief petty officers of different branches are supposed to know and what qualifications they are supposed to possess than as a book of information. Inasmuch as every chief petty officer is supposed to be an expert in his own branch, meaning rating or career field, uh, an effort to embody in one book all of the information that each chief petty officer is supposed to know would result in a very large volume, as it would necessarily have to cover every detail of the naval profession, which is basically impossible. Uh, it'd be like the Encyclopedia Britannica and then some. So uh, I don't even know if young people know what that is at this point. It's probably a CD, but used to be a giant set of books that were encyclopedias. Consequently, this book is merely an index of the subjects that you are supposed to know. And it tells you where you may find the subject fully discussed. And so there's a lot of professional um, resources where it's it's talking about specifics of the naval profession, whether it's institutional or professional. I actually had a fun discussion with my wife where there's some ship fitter stuff in there. And that's what she does at the shipyard uh, that she works at. And so we're just kind of like asking, like, how much of this translates from from 1916? Because that's the Blue Jackets manual that I have that we we're reading it out of. And. Um, so there's a lot of specific stuff that they kind of reference where they go over little things that are specific to a profession and then it discusses kind of where else to find uh, some of those things. So there are very specific things in the back of the Blue Jacks manual where this is, is from. But this article in and of itself is just a, like a leadership essay on what chiefs are supposed to do. Okay. So paragraph two, chief petty officers of each branch should therefore make a point of studying the subjects which relate to their particular specialty and should study them from the reference books mentioned. In doing this, chief petty officers should not overlook the subjects that are laid down for them as a class, irrespective of their specialty. So what does that mean? So what I get from that is it's basically talking about institutional and technical expertise. Like there's not just a rating or a uh they keep calling it a branch right there's not just like a career field that you need to focus on there's also the navy specific stuff and um you need to know that as well to be able to take care of your sailors because sailors are sailors first right so there's a lot of stuff that's universal to all sailors and then there's some stuff that's universal to submariners and then there's some stuff that's universal to our branch or our career field or our rating right so you need to you need to be on top of all those things and i really liked how it said study them from the reference books mentioned meaning that this blue jackets manual it was considered a source document saying like hey these are the books that you need to be reading so you it's it's kind of like a bibliography for an advancement exam where it's uh, it's like just going to NPC and making sure that you're getting the correct up to date revision of the reference and that it's the op nav instruction or the bupers instruction or the second nav instruction or whatever. OK, so paragraph three, this short talk to chief petty officers will, of course, be more directly applicable to those who are just coming up for their rate than to those who have held the rate for a long time. For chief petty officers of any length of service should be familiar with the duties and responsibilities of their position. So they're saying this is focused at new chiefs, which perfect time of year for us to be talking about this. And it relates directly to teaching to the creed. However, as the same honor, dignity and demeanor are required of all chief petty officers, it is hoped that this talk may be of some value even to those who are already rated as chief petty officers by giving them the point of view of their senior officers, by telling them how their seniors regard them, how they desire to treat them, and on the other hand, what degree of proficiency and what general demeanor they expect of them. 
So it's it, it's saying that this is directed at new chiefs, right? And, and this is perfect time of year for us to be talking about this for obvious reasons. But also, whenever we do this, a, a current chief could get value from this as well. I got so much out of this, and I'm a senior chief. Um, I keep joking that Facebook reminded me the other day that nine years ago I was a chief select. So um, it, <laughs> I'm basically at that point where I've been a chief longer than I've been in like uh, anything else. So it's and I got a lot out of this article. So it's this is not just for new chiefs, but the discussion piece of it is directed at new chiefs. So paragraph four. Take your own particular case, for example. It is quite probable that you entered the service a few years ago, an inexperienced and irresponsible boy or girl. I added the or girl because this is yeah, this is 1916. <laughs> without any knowledge of the Navy, of discipline, and probably without any knowledge of the special branch or specialty in which you are now to become a chief petty officer. During the time you served through the lower ratings, you were under instruction, not only as to your individual duties, but also in the elements of discipline. While you were in the lower ratings, you were not supposed to be highly responsible. You were supposed to do what you were told to acquire the knowledge requisite for the ratings you held, to use that knowledge under the direction of your petty officers, and to behave yourself and comply with the rules of military discipline. So I actually really like this paragraph, and it kind of sounds like it might be behind the times, right? Here's here's why I don't necessarily feel that way, uh, even though you could make that argument. I often hear people say, well, everyone's a leader. Everyone's a leader. Everyone's a leader. I really dislike that uh, that outlook, and here's why. So a junior sailor who, like they just mentioned, entered the service a few years ago as an irresponsible person without any knowledge of the Navy, of discipline, and probably without any knowledge of the rating, right? That person is already put into a place that is extremely uncomfortable, that is is just completely out of their comfort zone where they're forced to adapt to an entire new universe while rapidly learning all of the things that they just talked about. So to put the pressure of them also being a leader on, on that person at that time when they're dealing with all those things, it's probably a complete culture shock. Um, there's already an immense amount of pressure on junior sailors that are within their first few years of in the Navy, right? They're adapting to so many things. They're overwhelmed with information, demands, stress, you name it, right? So to, to decide now that we're going to tell them they're also leaders to me is insane. Um, I understand wh- when people are saying that, what they're conveying, like, look, the, the ETSN that has, you know, a warfare pin that's been on board for three years, the brand new initial session training fresh out of boot camp and a school sailor that shows up to the ship is going to look at that sailor as an example. And I agree with that, right? You're in a way you're kind of leading. Like I, I get that. I don't disagree with it, but I think it's dangerous to call them leaders. I think that's a very different thing. And I think that you're putting in a unfair amount of stress and like an unfair demand or expectation on those sailors. So I liked the way that it, it detailed the the experience of a brand new sailor to the Navy. And that also kind of put the expectations of a sailor at that point in their career in print. Like I, I, I don't think any of those things are false. I think the way that they stated that is exactly what I expect of a sailor that is is in that first few years of service. Um, and I'd be interested to discuss that with people if you disagree. I, I, I think that 
we're putting a little bit too much on on a sailor that is still adapting to the culture of the military, let alone all the other demands of their rating, their their uh, community, right? Like submarines puts a ton of stress on sailors to get their dolphins within the first year. On and on it goes. Okay, so um, so yeah, paragraph five. Then came a great change in your status. You were appointed a petty officer. When you received this promotion, it showed that your officers considered that you had a sufficient knowledge of the details of the duties of your rating and that you were sufficiently disciplined to warrant your stepping up from a status in which you merely did what you were told to a status in which the knowledge of what was required to be done and how it should be done. You could be trusted with the duty of taking charge of a number of sailors and giving them an order under the general direction of your seniors. Your duty was to follow up the work and assure yourself that it had been done properly. Instead of merely doing what your immediate petty officer told you to do, you as a petty officer had a larger field and performed your duty not by your own labor, but by directing a group of sailors under you. And such was your status, whether you were engaged in cleaning the ship, painting the ship, coaling the ship, which was a thing back then, or drilling. So this, I th- it's like the natural progression. So now you're in a supervisory position. Now you're a leader. Um, I, I don't think that it's unfair to understand that transition. I think it happens a lot earlier uh, nowadays where petty officers happen so quickly that it's almost like a blur and we kind of forget that they're junior sailors also. And you got to it's a balancing act. Um, I think that also need to be careful to not uh, to separate a questioning attitude from just do what you're told and 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 follow orders and do the work when you're in that junior sailor status. You can absolutely ask questions, ask why, challenge why a thing is a way, especially if something feels or looks wrong. It's a big thing on submarines that we're constantly pushing sailors to, hey, if something looks wrong, it probably is wrong. Bring it up because we're in an environment where if something goes horribly wrong, we want to know about it as early as possible so that uh, we can keep the water out of the people tank. We can <laughs> we can combat whatever casualty is coming, uh, do whatever we need to do to make sure that everything is in the best material condition possible so that the submarine keeps us alive. So uh, I, I want to make sure that I say that so that we're separating. Do what you're told from questioning attitude and, and the kind of things that we champion uh, nowadays with our junior sailors. Also, uh, the natural progression of, of being a petty officer, I just think that it did a pretty great job of explaining that as well. Uh, as far as like you're kind of in the transition area where you're now a supervisor, you're a leader, you're in charge of sailors, uh, you're directing people to do things instead of doing it with your own hands, regardless of what we're talking about. I, I thought I, I really enjoyed that description. Um, and to there's kind of like it, it split it into two paragraphs, but it's still basically paragraph five, which uh, was the petty officer paragraph. In each case, your excellence as a petty officer was measured by the amount and excellence of the work which was accomplished by the sailors under you, their practical knowledge, their proficiency, their thoroughness and their reliability. As time passed and as your experience increased, you were promoted from third class to second class and, and finally to first class. With each promotion you added to your experience and knowledge, your duties broadened and your responsibilities increased. Nevertheless, at all times, you were more or less under instruction and under trial. I love that. Like it, it's it's explaining that at the petty officer level, right? The sailors that are working for you are 
that that like that's your mission, right? And that you are evaluated by the success of your sailors, not by your own success. And I think we get lost in the I don't chasing EPs and getting the collateral duties and I need the awards and I need to be in this LPO position and blah blah blah. We get lost in individual achievement in the pursuit of the next promotion and especially to chief. I did it too. I was there and I was very worried about making sure that I checked all the boxes and so I'd be competitive, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, leaders are judged by the performance of their charges. And I thought that it was really appropriate that it listed this not just at the chief's level, which I feel like is where it's commonly discussed today. It's talking about it at the petty officer level. The sailors that work for you at that level, like that, I'm judging you based on the performance of the sailors that work for you. It's a big deal. And LPOs especially. I'm looking at you. Like, the, I'm judging you based on the success of your sailors, not on how many collateral duties you can carry, not on uh, if you just held the job, if you qualified all the watches you were supposed to, all those things. Like, not that those are not important, but like, if you qualified a watch and stood it, how successful was your watch team? Did your watch team continue to qualify? Did they do well during inspections? Were they called out as as excellent during a certain evolution? All of those. That's what I'm looking at. Like you qualifying and standing the watch is great. Did you barely stay qualified? Did you get relieved more than once because you weren't you weren't prop standing a professional watch? Like the, you, there's a difference, and evaluating that performance is is key. Evaluating the performance of the sailors that work for that leader is how we judge leaders. Paragraph six. You have now come to the point where, having served through all the lower ratings. You are supposed to be an expert in your own branch. You have training and experience, and had you not succeeded in making your officers believe that you had proper regard for orders and for discipline, you would not now be coming up for chief petty officer. You are promoted to chief petty officer, your status changes even to a greater extent than it changed when you were promoted from the ranks to petty officer. The change from petty officer first class to chief petty officer probably carries with it a greater change in status than any other promotion in your whole career. Your uniform changes, your quarters and your method of living changes, the treatment accorded you by senior officers changes. All chief petty officers welcome these changes as well as the corresponding increase in pay. But don't forget that these are not the only features of your life that change. Along with all these changes comes a very great change in your responsibilities as well as the absolute necessity for a different point of view. If you forget the changes of this nature, you altogether fail in your duties to the government. So what does that mean? It means don't lose sight of your actual job. And I think that a lot of junior sailors would, would this like paragraph would resonate with them. Like, look, things change. Your uniform changes, your quarters change, your method of living changes, and the treatment accorded to you by senior officers and everyone else is going to change. And a lot of times a new chief is going to get lost in that, is going to focus on that, right? It's very important that all of those things are, are like to make sure the junior sailors call me chief and not chief select anymore or petty officer or whatever. The responsibilities that change Right. Like your duty to your sailors and to the government, the way that that changes, that's the important part. That's where your focus needs to be. That's your job. And if you forget to focus on how those things change and how important those changes are, then you altogether fail in your duties. And that's a big deal. I really loved that paragraph and how it was expressed. Um, so the 
the next one, paragraph seven is pretty short. The aim of this little talk is to dwell upon this new view, this new point of view, this increased feeling of responsibility, this sense of duty, which impels you to do a thing, not because you have to do it, but because it ought to be done because it is your duty to do it. I mean, two sentences got me fired up. The, the, the aim of this talk is to make you understand the new point of view they were just talking about in paragraph six. This increased feeling of responsibility, this sense of duty which impels you to do a thing, not because you have to do it, but because it ought to be done, because it's your duty to do it. This, if there was ever a, a sentence that best communicated what I mean when I say your sailors are entitled, absolutely entitled to the best possible chief you can be. It's right here. Paragraph seven of this article. I it's there are so many things left undone because it's not someone's job because they don't have to do it. Right. There are so many things that fall within the wheelhouse of chief petty officers in the Navy that it's not necessarily our quote unquote job, right? It doesn't necessarily fit within my job description if there is such a thing, but it ought to be done because it's a chief's duty to do it because it involves taking care of and advocating for sailors. That's my job all the time. It's my job even if it's a sailor that's not in my division or department. Do it because it ought to be done because it's your duty. You should have a sense of of duty when it comes to those things. It shouldn't be like, oh, well, they have a chief, so, you know, that should be, well, I'll go tell them or let me make sure. Like, it, it's not that that's not a mechanism. It's not that that sometimes that's not appropriate, but if it's not being done and it's not going to be done unless you engage, do it because it ought to be done because that's your duty. Paragraph eight, the position of a chief petty officer is one of special honor. It shows not only that you have served successfully, but that your service has met with the commendation of your seniors, that you are proficient, trustworthy, and reliable. The uniform of a chief petty officer shows, therefore, not only that you are serving honorably now, but that you have served honorably for years and have, by your own successful effort, risen to the top of the petty officers of your own branch. See to it that your entire demeanor is such as to elevate the standing of the uniform which you now wear. Make your life and your actions both on board ship and on shore such as to increase rather than to decrease the difference between the Blue Jackets uniform and that of the chief petty officer. So there's some interesting stuff in there. So there's a few things that at first glance I'm kind of like, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, but there's some stuff in there that I really loved. So the position of a chief petty officer being one of special honor. I, I agree with that because of the way that I read and how I interpret that. And I interpret it as we have a responsibility to lead sailors. It's an honor to do so. And, and that's the way it's one of special honor and trust. Like that is a position of special trust where those sailors are are putting like their careers and their morale and their trust and their just everything. They're putting all of those things in your hands and they're trusting you with them. And that is a position of special honor to me. That's how I take that. And that's how I'm choosing to read that. Uh, and I think I'm right. <laughs> it shows not only that you have served successfully, but that your service has met with the combination of your seniors, that you're proficient, trustworthy, reliable. And then it goes on about your service. 
Um, the way that it describes it, I like I don't necessarily mind it. I wish it was a little more focused on what we talked about earlier, where we are evaluated by the performance of our sailors. I think that's what they mean when they say that. So they're talking about your service. Your service is your leading of sailors. So you're doing that was honorable now and in the past and that you've risen to the top of the petty officer of your uh, petty officers of your own branch by doing so so it's kind of like I, again i'm choosing to read it literally um in a way but also just like they they said it earlier so i don't think they need to restate it i think there's a very uh lean writing style at work here and and that that they've already said that so they don't feel like they don't need to restate it and that I should read between the lines so that's that's what I'm choosing to do again always open to discussion and I'm happy to talk about it so the part where it's we're talking about see to it that your entire demeanor is such as to elevate the standing of the uniform which you now wear love that that get, that gets me pumped but make your life and your actions both on board the ship and on shore such as to increase rather than to decrease the difference between the blue jackets uniform and that of the chief petty officer um that line i can't i i i'm having a hard time getting on board with that in any way shape or form and here here's what i mean right i think what they meant to say was that back then the it's like the responsibilities of and the performance of blue jackets what they like we didn't demand what we do now and that in order to the, like that separation was necessary uh to build the credibility and, and respect and trust in chiefs that uh, we enjoy. So the, but, but to increase the difference, I, I'm not even sure there should be a difference. So that's one of those lines where I'm not, I think it was, that's it's shown its age in that line in and of itself. But I, I, I get, I understand where they were coming from at the time, but I don't necessarily agree with, uh, with that line now. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Chief Petty Officer's heritage. I love the uniform. I love the anchors. I collect this stuff. I am a Kool-Aid drinking true believer. But um, at the same time, I think we create a lot of artificial boundaries that probably take away from uh, our ability to lead more than they add to it. And I've talked about that plenty, so I don't want to. I don't want to beat that to death. Uh, paragraph nine. Your position is such that your senior officers wish to treat you as an officer. In order to be accorded this treatment, you must adopt the point of view of an officer. This point of view can best be described by saying that you must cultivate a deep sense of responsibility, a high sense of duty, and live up to a high professional standard. So, uh, wish to treat us as officers more in that in the khaki ranks, we interact a lot. They rely on us very heavily, not just to uh, advise that the officers that are in charge, but also to train junior officers uh, as leaders. So th that's the way that can apply to today. I don't, again, this is another section that I don't think they back then meant the same thing as I'm interpreting it now, but I think that there's a lot of really great stuff to be taken from this. Uh, in order to be accorded that treatment, you must adopt the point of view of, of an officer, meaning that you must understand it and take the time to establish a really great rapport with the officers that you work for and with. Right. There's there's a part that you need to understand that I don't I don't really think a lot of sailors take the time to do until you make chief, because all of a sudden it's your responsible to train to your responsibility to train J.O.'s. So. Um, cultivating a deeper sense of responsibility, a high sense of duty and living up to a high professional standard lead by example, right? Like I, the best way I can think of 
always to lead anyone is leadership by example, but especially junior officers because they're effectively junior sailors, even though they're in more of a management position when they first come to the service than a junior sailor who comes up the enlisted ranks. All right. Paragraph 10. Standard. The fact that you are a chief petty officer is evidence that you know how a thing should be done. Do not neglect to do your duty properly. Do not fall to a lower standard simply because you think you will not be spoken to or reported for not doing this properly or doing this duty properly. Such an attitude is not surprising in a recruit. There are times when it may be overlooked in the lower ratings of a petty officer, but as a chief petty officer, you have passed that stage. You are constantly under the watchful eye of your juniors. Anything they see you do, they naturally think is all right. If, for example, they see that you are careless about your uniform or about saluting, regardless of the amount of instruction they may have received, their standard is lowered. If you are punctilious, meaning punctual or on time, the men under your under you will copy the precedent you have established. If your manner is military toward your seniors, you will find the enlisted men under you more easily brought up to the standard. If the chief petty officers are thorough, respectful, and have a high sense of duty, the tone of the whole ship will follow. If, on the other hand, enlisted men and women... See that the chief petty officers are unmilitary, that they violate orders and regulations when officers are not around. They will feel even more than ordinarily justified in doing likewise. The tone of the ship, the tone of the service itself, must come more directly from the chief petty officers than from any other group of people in the Navy. You have the standard. Live up to it. Whether you are on independent duty or on duty under officers, whether you are unobserved or directly under the eye of your seniors. Live up to the standard, and you will find that those under you will be more inclined to do likewise. I love this paragraph. Um, I'm a big standards guy. I have an episode called Standards. So we just I just went on the Cutlass podcast with retired fleet master chief Paul Kingsbury, talked about standards a whole bunch. I can't uh, I mean, I, I can't find anything in this paragraph I disagree with. Um, as soon as you do not live up to a standard as a chief, you have given permission to everyone, including officers, to to lower their bar. Uh, I really loved that it first addressed that as a chief petty officer that you know how a thing should be done. You know what the standard is and you know how to do it and you know how to affect it, train on it, communicate it and enforce it. And then it it basically communicates not doing that as the attitude of a recruit, which I love because it's blunt straight to the point and has the added benefit of being completely true. I should not have to explain that to a chief. You, we own standards. We're the ones responsible for living them, for setting them, for training, educating, communicating, and then holding sailors accountable to them. So I should not have to explain to a chief how to wear their uniform. I should not. And, and I'm not saying that they can't be human beings and accidentally forget to button a button or something and need correction for that small thing. Hey, your your back pocket button is unbuttoned or whatever. But blatantly disregarding uniform regulations, um, doing something like needing a haircut, not shaving, stuff like I, I shouldn't have to tell a chief that. Again, everybody has human moments once in a while, but... Uh, I loved that it, it it so bluntly compared that to the attitude of a recruit. 
uh, not letting any of those things slide and then living by example, like just lead by example. If you do those things, it's you will find that the sailors in your charge also do those things. There's a ton of examples I could give where I never even had to tell them to do a thing. They just started doing it. Um, I talk about shining my boots all the time back when black boots were a little more common. Um, and the sailors on my last submarine started shining their boots. I kind of friendly like we did. There was some friendly ribbing going on where I was like, hey, when are you going to shine your boots? When are you going to shine your boots? But I never forced them to do it. I never said thou shalt have shiny boots. Um, but my sailors just started. It became like a friendly competition. It became a thing that they just wanted to do what I was doing. Um, they wanted to meet my standard and and get the you know positive reinforcement that comes along with that and it became kind of a game where we were giving each other a hard time and then you know then my junior sailors have shiny boots and they're giving each other a hard time like well your boots aren't shiny as mine what's what's you're slacking like kind of the friendly ribbing would would happen there and it was it was a good thing and but i didn't i didn't force that on them i didn't create a standard even where i said you have to have shiny boots i implied that you should have shiny boots, but it was one of those things where I just led by example and they followed it. It, it works. The tone of the ship and the service itself must come to more directly from chiefs than anywhere else. I believe that wholeheartedly that the chief's mess owns this and that the tone of the ship, good or bad, and the tone of the service, good or bad, comes most directly from the chief's mess. And I think that that's a very heavy large, important duty that we have thrust upon the, us when we join the mess that it's very important that all new chiefs understand. Speaking of duty, paragraph 11, sense of duty. You know the standard. You know what to do. You know the rules of discipline, of military etiquette. You know the regulations and instructions pertaining to your own branch. The government, not the officers over you, pays for your services. It pays you for doing things as you know they should be done. The sense of duty is feeling is the feeling that impels you to do these things, not because you have to do them, but because it is your duty to do them. And in deciding whether it is your duty, be very liberal in your interpretation. I love this article, man, like because I've felt this way for a really long time and it's the first time I've seen it appear in print and I'm pumped. Um I love the last line. That's my favorite part. So that you know the standard, you know what I'll, what to do, the rules of discipline, all those things. If you don't, it's very important that you find out. So there's a lot of things, especially like military etiquette, military drill, like those types of things. After boot camp, a lot of people don't have a reason to stay up on them and it, they kind of get lost a little bit. And then you find yourself in a situation where you need to know those things. Look it up. Ask ask a friend. Find an RDC or an NMTI. Uh, they can help you out. Just know that in those moments where it, it's it's blatantly stating that you know these things. Well, you might not. Um, some things might have slipped because of the demands of everything else that's going on. And it just wasn't the thing that was at the forefront of your mind for a really long time. So just go back and, and refresh or go study or go find an expert that can help you out. Um, but it, the last line in deciding whether it is your duty, be very liberal in your interpretation. That's kind of what I was talking about earlier about the um, it, how it doesn't matter if they're in your division or department or even if they're on your ship. Like I, I blessed 
because of this podcast to be able to help a lot of the listeners, right? Like to be in a position where I can point you in the direction of a resource or I can refer you to someone or I can help you find the right answer just based on my own experience and the friends that I have that can answer questions that I don't have an immediate answer to. But in deciding whether or not a thing that needs to be done is your duty Be very liberal in your interpretation. And I don't want you to overwhelm yourself and take on, like throw the whole Navy on your back and think you're going to shoulder that on your own. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that as a chief, you need to be very liberal in interpreting what is your duty because every sailor is your sailor. You're going to hear that a lot. Um, If someone needs a chief, if something that needs to be done needs a chief, Don't be the last one to step up into that gap. If a gap needs filling, fill it. Uh, You might not be the perfect person for the job, but in that moment, if if there's a need, go be the chief until that perfect person shows up, if they do. If they don't, then you are the perfect person because you're the one that's available to fill that gap. And at least in that moment, they have a chief with them, advocating for them and helping them in any way that they possibly can. Paragraph 12, sense of responsibility. It frequently happens that both commissioned officers and chief petty officers see things that should be done, although it is clear that it is not their duty to do them. Such cases, for example, uh, that would result in confusion were the officer or the chief petty officer in question to do them. If you are confronted with such a condition, take the point of view that you have reached a position of responsibility in the service, that something which should be done may have escaped notice If this omission is clearly of such a nature that it is not your duty to remedy it, it is, nevertheless, your duty to call the attention of proper people to such an omission. Sometimes lives are lost because some manifest danger has not been pointed out. If you are in doubt as to whether it is your duty to look after something that you know should be done, the only safe rule is to do it. If you know that It is someone else's duty. Call attention to it. Take the attitude that you are part of the Navy, not merely a part of your department on an individual ship. Try to do a little more rather than a little less than a strict interpretation of your duty demands. Both your seniors and you yourself will be better pleased and the service will benefit thereby. I love this article. So it again, it just expounds on the sense of duty, but it it's translating it as responsibility where I may happen upon a thing that, again, doesn't necessarily fall in my wheelhouse. Maybe I'm in the machinery room and there's oil spraying all over the place or it has sprayed or spilled or whatever and it's created a slip hazard and maybe it's on a, a, a hot piece of a, like another like the exhaust of some other thing and it's smoking as a result because now it's hot and all these. Other. If I happen upon a thing like that, am I going to walk away from it because I'm not a mechanic? No. No, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to go find a senior A-ganger that can help me out with it. I'm going to get people down there to help clean it up, even if it's not their space. Like, I go get the off-going watch section to help that A-ganger get that oil cleaned up. Like, we do whatever we need to do because, and this is, this hits hard with me as a submariner because we talk about a lot of things like this that our rules are written in blood because there was a, a thing happened where, A life was lost because some manifest danger had not been pointed out where somebody didn't say something. So that danger became a loss of life or limb, right? Like it, it, it killed people because somebody didn't speak up 
And so, again, we're constantly like, if it looks wrong, it probably is wrong. Speak up. The worst worst thing that could happen is you're wrong. I would much rather point something out that I think's crazy and be wrong about it than not be and find out later that that little wisp of steam that I thought was weird when I was touring the engine room as the duty chief was the beginning of something failing that was going to be blasting pressurized steam in the engine room and kill a bunch of a bunch of my nuclear trained shipmates. Right. Like I've done that. I grabbed a watch stander and said, hey, is that supposed to be doing that? Like, of course, I don't know for sure if steam's supposed to be venting out of that thing. But um, but the mechanic was the nuke mechanic was like, oh, yeah, that's this. And he explained it to me. And I was like, oh, OK, that just seemed a little strange to me. But what if it wasn't normal? Like, that's a humongous deal. Any nukes listening know what I'm talking about. If steam's coming out of a thing, it's not supposed to be coming out of in the engine room of a nuclear ship. That's a giant problem and could kill a lot of people. Um, so just again, speak up. It, everybody's going to be in a better place if you take the time to say, hey, did you know about this? Is this okay? Is this a bad thing? Just call attention to it. Everybody's going to be a better off, be better off as a result. Paragraph 13, professional work. As a chief petty officer, you are an expert in your own department. There are no petty officers senior to you. Those below you will look up to you uh, for information and instruction. Be sure that the information you give is absolutely accurate. If you are weak on any feature of your specialty, study it up. It is all down somewhere in black and white. Study the best methods. Keep up with all improvements. Do not feel that because you passed an examination, you have finished studying. Keep yourself fully informed and be ready to impart your knowledge and skills to your subordinates. This is a big one. Um, I, what I really love about it is that... Uh, so, well, first of all, there are no petty officers senior to you when they're talking about chiefs. This is 1916. Uh, the senior chiefs, mass chiefs, didn't, the balls didn't start rolling on that till like 59. So they, there was no one senior to a chief petty officer back then uh, when it came to the enlisted ranks. So there's that. Uh, that when they're talking about be sure that the information you give out is absolutely accurate. That does not mean that you need to have the answer to everything all the time. What it does mean is that if you're going to dispense information, it better be absolutely accurate. If you don't know for sure if it's absolutely accurate, then you need to go ask or look it up or do whatever you need to do to validate the information before you provide it, right? It's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to not have every single answer immediately upon being asked a question. What's not okay is for you to shoot from the hip or fake it till you make it or do any of those silly things because you have this misconception that chiefs are supposed to have all the answers. In a manner of speaking, we do, but what that means is leveraging the network and asking different experts or people that have the experience that you don't or finding out where to, to get the answer, what book to look it up in, what resource to leverage, right? Collectively, eventually, we're going to have the answer no matter what. But that doesn't mean in the moment as a brand new chief that you're expected to have every single answer all the time, even if it's your career field, right? Even if it's your rating, your specialty, like I, there are times where like, I'm pretty sure it's this, but let me, let me look it up to be positive, right? There's no way that I expect every single uh, chief of every single specialty to have every single like 
page of every single reference memorized. That's insane. It doesn't make any sense. Like, go look at the nuclear references. Like, I know I'm picking on nukes a little bit, but like, go look at an RPM, just one. There's like a ton of them, but just go look at one. Like, there's no way you're going to have all those things memorized. And those are some really smart people, but I don't expect you to be memorized. I expect you to look it up. So study it up. Yes. But the, the studying it up piece is going to allow you to find the answer more accurately and more quickly. Right. But when you dispense that information, make sure you're absolutely accurate. You do so by either studying it up and knowing that that answer that you provide is absolutely accurate or saying, let me go look that up and I will bring you the reference and we will go over it and I'll explain to you why this is the way that we do it and that that information is absolutely accurate because I'm holding the book in my hand. Uh, you should come to your commanding officers or whoever, your department or whatever, with a book in your hand 99% of the time. Paragraph 14, thoroughness and reliability. An absolute essential of your rating is reliability. This does not mean merely that you are certain to return on time for duty. It means that you may be relied upon to do thoroughly and in the manner that it should be done, whatever you're going to do, however important the duty, and however general your orders may be. It means that when you report the duty finished, your report may be accepted without an inspection and your senior feel that the duty has been done and everything finished as well and as thoroughly as it would have been done had he been there personally. If for any reason you find that you cannot carry out your orders in every detail, report any part of the order you were unable to carry out and why you were unable to carry it out. This one's huge, especially like when we're talking about interacting with your seniors, especially the commanding officer. And, and, and maybe I'm a little more sensitive to this because I have such access to my commanding officer on submarines. But your reliability is essential to your success in that position of being the chief of that division that that commanding officer trusts is doing that duty however important or however general and that they can be relied upon that when you provide a report that that's finished or that let's say that this piece of gear is broken here's my plan forward and here's the things i need and the timeline it's going to take and all those things that 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 commanding officer if they can provide backup to you they will if they can provide advice to you they will but they trust that when you report a thing to them that they don't need to follow behind you and inspect everything they don't need to uh, tear everything apart and question everything all the time, right? That you will probably get challenged by your commanding officer. I, I can pretty much guarantee it. You will probably get asked questions. You will probably, uh, they'll ask why sometimes. They're incredibly intelligent humans that got to the place they are in life on purpose. Like that, they're there for a reason. So they're going to ask you those questions and they're entitled to those, to those answers. But when you report a thing complete, the vast majority of the time they're going to accept that report. They have, hopefully, by your demonstrated performance, no reason to question you as if, like, they they didn't trust you, right? They're going to trust that, as if they had been there themselves, that that duty was carried out because the chief is reporting completion. The chief is reporting that that piece of gear is fully restored. The chief is reporting that that maintenance item that's underway limiting is completed and that we're ready to go. Um, that it's a really, really important credibility piece that you take the time to establish that reliability to be successful as a chief. Like it, it's a huge thing that in order for you to maintain control of your own destiny as, as a LCPO of a division or department or whatever, 
that that reliability that you're a very good steward of it that you take it very seriously that you go way out of your way to make sure that when you make a report that your your senior and in this case i keep saying commanding officer but just your senior your department head your exo whoever you're reporting to like that they can be absolutely certain that you did everything you possibly could to make sure that that duty was finished and that they can accept that report as if they had been standing there personally or if for any reason you find out that you can't do it that it, you report any any part that was not complete and like why you were unable to carry out what the plan is going forward how are you going to mitigate that thing whatever paragraph 15 duties every chief petty officer understands in a general way that he or she is the senior petty officer on the ship in their particular branch that their duties are of a general nature in the department and that they are required to see their department and everything connected with it kept in shipshape condition. All this, however, constitute but a part of a chief petty officer's duties. As a chief petty officer, you recognize these duties, but in paying due attention to the material, do not overlook your duties in connection with the personnel. Too many chief petty officers wholly neglect the fact, in all probability, the most important part of their duty is training and instruction of their subordinates. As a chief petty officer, you are an expert in the details of your department. Unless you recognize that it is your duty to instruct your juniors and unless you do instruct them and unless you endeavor to include in them the knowledge of how things should be done of and how they should conduct themselves, you will have failed in your duties. Too often, petty officers direct inexperienced sailors of lower ratings to carry out certain orders and then think no more about it. Later, when it is found that the work has not been done or has not been thoroughly done or has been done improperly, they lay the blame on the junior. In such a case, it is clearly evident that the petty officer has neglected their duty. Remember always that you are an instructor. And that the instruction of your juniors is one of the most important duties, that it is your duty to instruct them not only in the details of the professions, but also in regard to their general conduct or demeanor on board the ship. Not only is it your duty to instruct them, it is also your duty to enforce compliance with such instructions and see that they are trained to do their duty properly, thoroughly, and to observe the rules and the regulations of the service. Again, like I, <laughs> I love this article. Uh, so it, it's the duty of being an instructor, of being a trainer, of educating, training, instructing your sailors in every aspect of the service, right? In their career field, in the institutional stuff, in the professionalism, military bearing, all of the things. It's our job to teach them. In doing so, we're training our relief. You'll hear that a lot during the chief season. Train your relief, train your relief, right? These petty officers are going to soon be chiefs. That's how chiefs are are replaced. Like that's like the, the circle of life. Like it, all petty officers are are going to be replacing chiefs, right? Like like chiefs come from the petty officer ranks. Not all petty officers will make chief, but Every single chief was a petty officer. That's where we get our replacements from. So we need to be re replacing ourselves. We need to be competently replacing ourselves. We need to be aggressively and proactively training our reliefs so that when we sail off into the sunset, like we all do, every single chief has to call it a day at some point. Uh, we all end up retired. 
When we do that, we leave with the confidence that we have well-trained, competent, professional reliefs. That like that's the job. That when you when you find yourself wearing anchors to work, your job is to is to lead your sailors. Your job is to train your sailors and get them to a place in their development where they can competently replace like the junior sailors are replacing the petty officers and the petty officers are replacing the chiefs. It's what we do. And the junior officers are replacing commanding officers. And that one I find gets lost a lot. That one I feel like we don't spend enough time on and that we don't talk about enough. It is a chief petty officer's duty to train junior officers. That division officer that is like the the first step in the officer leadership structure of your chain of command it is your duty to train them. It is your duty to be a resource for that that junior officer to lean on. It's your duty to teach them what a relationship between an officer and chief should and can be so that when they're commanding officers, they're relying on the chief's mess to do what we talked about earlier, to be the, the single uh, most important influence on good order and discipline on the the way that the Navy runs like we're supposed to be doing these things we like to say we're the backbone of the Navy well guess what commanding officers are in charge of everything and if we don't do a good job of teaching junior officers how to lead how to interact with chiefs and how to leverage that resource that we're saying should be setting the tone for the entire Navy then we're failing them we're failing the service that's our job. It's incredibly important that we spend the time on junior officers because they're the future COs. It's just like the petty officers that replace us. Like they're replacing the commanding officers that we pull chunks of our hair out because they don't want to listen to us or they don't trust us. And we have to work to like remediate that perception of chiefs. It's like if you spend the time and invest in those junior officers ahead of time, then it, they'll have at least one positive interaction with a chief so that when they do encounter some type of negative interaction that makes them want to not trust them, they're probably going to call you and be like, why is this happening? And then you get to continue mentoring that J.O. so that it doesn't burn that bridge permanently. So you end up with a commanding officer that doesn't trust chiefs. It's really important. Paragraph 16. Twofold nature of duties. Duties in the Navy are twofold in nature. Not only must you be expert in your specialty and be able to instruct others in that specialty, but in addition to this, do not for a moment forget the military side of your life. As a chief petty officer, it is more incumbent upon you to remember this than it would be were you in one of the lower ratings. For example, if you happen to be a chief machinist mate, there's no reason why you should not be able to march a squad of sailors in a military manner, halt them, and face them smartly. Because you may be a chief yeoman, there's no reason why you should neglect boat etiquette or neglect to salute your seniors. If you happen to be a chief pharmacist mate, which it, back then it was a version of Corman, <laughs> so that wasn't, you know, uh, we don't have pharmacist mates anymore. We have pharmacists that are officers, but... Uh, we do not have pharmacist mates anymore. It's it's pretty much uh, hospital corpsman. That is no reason why you should not know and observe uniform regulations or orders concerning ship's routine. Each chief petty officer should take pride in knowing and observing and in requiring others under them to observe all of these details of ship's life. Simply because you may not happen to be in the seaman branch 
Do not allow yourself for a moment to think that your duties do not extend to the military side of your profession. So this, to me, in a lot of ways, it's the institutional uh, expertise piece of institutional technical expertise. But it's also, I I had a cob, and I don't remember which one, uh, that used to say to the chief's mess, you're a chief on the ship all the time. And what he meant by that was, it doesn't matter what capacity you're serving in. It doesn't matter if I'm like, let's say, for instance, lunch went off the rails. I'm in the galley, like helping. I helped like finish cooking the meal, got them out of the out of the hole they were in. And then now I'm serving on the line to allow them to like clean up the mess and get a little ahead and kind of just restore order. Right. It happens all the time. So I'm on the line serving the meal to the crew. It, I've done it a bunch. Uh, I'm, I'm in the midst of a, a very specific duty that is very uh, specific to my rating or my specialty, right? If uh, somebody walks through the serving line and they're doing something crazy, they're horse playing, or I mean, I know electricians are going to love this. Like they come through the line covered in carbon dust, right? You got it. You can't. I can't serve. Uh, I can't have you walking through my serving line touching all the things with your carbon dust covered hands. I can't have. So. I'm a chief on the ship all the time. I'm, I need to correct that. Even though I'm in the midst of doing a thing, I need to correct that. And that's also kind of specific to my job. But it's the same thing as if I'm walking down the passageway and and some sailor's uniform's all jacked up, right? I'm a sh- chief on the ship all the time. I'm the cook chief, but I'm a chief petty officer on the ship all the time. So if something's wrong, I need to address it. It's my duty to address it, as we talked about earlier. And I should interpret that broadly to include as many things as I competently can, right? So take that military side of your profession, right? Like that being a chief on the ship all the time, take that seriously. There are, there are very um, specific things that I, I've always taken very seriously. And I, and I don't think that we as a service, even at this point, take as seriously as, as we need to, like saluting your seniors and doing it smartly and properly, uh, maintaining your uniform, marching a squad of sailors in a military manner, halting them and facing them smartly. You'll see during the chief season, hopefully, I mean, this year with COVID, it may not be a thing, but every year at some point, selectees are put in charge of a formation and they're expected to do exactly that. And like I mentioned earlier, almost none of them can accomplish it unless they were an RDC or an MTI. I was an MTI and I got really into it because I just thought it was really interesting. I loved the Marine Corps drill manual and we got into it with, I had an FC1 that's now FCC that uh, was my LPO and he had been an MTI previously and so he was very experienced with it. Uh, definitely an expert and he took a lot of time to train me as a chief and then all the other MTIs and make sure that we were doing it properly. There was one thing like if there was one thing the Navy did on that base better than every other service. It was marching and cadence like we smoked everybody. Uh, the Air Force was really sharp like their marching was on point. Um, but cadence like can't couldn't mess with us. Like it was like, and I was really proud of that. If you can't tell like I, I'm, I'm really into that stuff. I really I, I think it's great. Uh, it's very, it's like the very like hoo military type of stuff. Like I, I love that stuff. Uh, it gets me excited. But it's a, it's a skill that you should have because you're going to find yourself at a retirement ceremony at some kind of like dedication or a ceremony of some kind. And I, and I've been there, I was wearing a rope uh, and I was at some ceremony. I think it was a, a pinning ceremony practice for someone. And we were on a warship museum and they were doing the, they were trying <laughs> to rehearse to march in and do a thing. 
And the people that were providing guidance had no idea what they were doing. And the chief selects had no idea what they were doing. And so I had a rope on and some chief, some senior chief's looking around and he goes, hey, chief, come here. And I calls me over because I was wearing an NMTI rope. And turns out I know exactly what I'm doing. And so I got to do that with them and spend that time doing that. But it's a skill that it's like it's a rarely utilized skill, but it's one you're going to find yourself needing. And so that's one of those things that it, it's not it shouldn't always be as much of a focus in when we're talking about like military formation stuff, but it, you should be able to do it. You should be smartly saluting your seniors. You should have a, you pro- be properly observing uniform regulations at all times. All, all of the things that are the normal military routine things, like you shouldn't lose those in the, in the conduct of like the, all of the crazy things that we get overwhelmed with all the time. It, a lot of it gets lost in the sauce because we all are, are, we are all overworked, stressed out, and you kind of start skipping steps that you things start falling away that don't seem to be as much of a priority. And I understand that. And sometimes that is the right answer. But there are times where you will have the bandwidth to observe these things and to do them properly. And you should be to the maximum extent possible. Paragraph 17. Let officers judge your proficiency. It frequently happens that when the time draws near for a chief petty officer to receive a permanent appointment or when they desire a letter of commendation preparatory to taking an examination for warrant, they become very enthusiastic and eager to expound their points of excellence. Let your conduct as a chief petty officer be such that instead of being forced to explain your points of merit, your officers will already know them. Let your officers be the judges of your proficiency. An officer knows no greater pleasure than that of being able to give an unqualified recommendation to a sailor who has served under them. Your letter ought to be based on your excellent work as a chief petty officer rather than upon the excellent manner in which you plead your case when you come up for promotion. I'm a big fan. There's some weird stuff in there because it's an older it's older. uh, They were writing about what the Navy was in 1916. So. Uh, there was some stuff that doesn't exactly make the most sense, and I'll try to explain that. But the overall vibe of the paragraph, like the overall message there, I absolutely loved. Uh, it is basically be undeniable. Let your let your performance speak for itself at all times, so that when you come up for promotion, those evals write themselves. Those letters of recommendation or or interview appraisals, if you're going up for like LDO and warrant or or some other commissioning program, they're going to write themselves. And officers love reporting seniors love being in a position I love when I'm writing evals for sailors being in the position where it's like I already know because you've been doing it and demonstrating it for so long that I'm already ready to write an unqualified recommendation for that sailor like I'm already ready to write the eval that says already performing at the level of a chief petty officer I'm already there so you don't need to go on like a PR blitz uh, to, to try to rank where you think you ought to rank for promotion's sake uh, you just need to be that person all the time and the rest of it takes care of itself. As far as the, the qualifying statement, so when we're talking about um, to a chief petty officer to receive a permanent appointment, much it was much like uh, being frocked and then being paid as the pay grade. Uh, so that's kind of just like conceptually, it's basically the same thing. Um, and then they're talking about taking an examination for warrant. So there used to be more of a natural progression from chief to warrant. It wasn't really like an optional officer session program like it is today. So it's kind of, they knew it was coming and eventually they would take an exam for warrant uh, and, and 
do that job. So the, the warrant officer used to be a slightly different role back then uh, than it is now. So just understand that that's what they're talking about. Um, but yeah, I, I loved this entire article. And now we're going to get to the summary points, which is something that it came up during that episode where he was talking where the, the spec war tech that I was talking to talking to the, the first class petty officer. He summed up in, in, in a way that I thought was really amazing and unique where he rephrased these five points in the summary uh, to effectively be the skeleton of an update to the chief petty officer's creed. And it was really hard to argue with him. And, and based on the entire content of this article, I'm just like, God, like I love so much of it. And I think so much of it is are, are things we need to refocus on nowadays. But uh, I'm going to read the five summary bullets. So you have a position in which you must have expert knowledge of every detail that applies to your branch of the profession. That's number one. Two, your duties in training and instructing sailors of lower ratings are even more important than your duties in connection with the material. Three, your conduct must be entirely above reproach and your daily life such as to set an example both from a personal as well as from a professional point of view. Four, whatever may be your special branch, always bear in mind the military side of life. Comply strictly with the formalities of military life and require the same of your juniors. And number five, yours is a position of honor and responsibility. Do your work from a sense of duty, be thorough in all you do, and require of your subordinates thoroughness and military exactitude. I, I'm so pumped on this article. I'm so, I can't believe I haven't read this until Teaching to the Creed put it in my face because that 1916 Blue Jacks manual that I just turned to look at, which is why my voice faded, has been sitting on my shelf for years. Um, I'm ashamed that I that I didn't take the time to flip through that earlier and and read that article because with few exceptions, I love the content of it. I love every thing that it intended when it was written so long ago, and I think. 99% of it translates to current day. Um, it's it's a great way to refocus. It's a great, the content is a great way to dictate to you what's expected of a chief. And, and, and keep in mind, this article was intended for new chiefs, even though like people that have been serving as chiefs for a while could probably get something out of it is basically what they said earlier on. So this was intended for new chiefs. When I read this, it hit hard and resonated with me. And I've been a chief for nine years and I got a lot out of it. And it's not, not necessarily that I haven't been doing and champion a lot, championing a lot of these things for a long time, but that doesn't mean that I didn't need the refocus that I didn't need the motivation and that I didn't take some, some things from this, as like, yes, like I'm going to use that for later. I'm going to use that to train the sailors that are charged with relieving me at some point. And that I'm going to, I'm, I'm like, I'm going to use this as a training aid for existing chiefs and, and, and everything in between. I love this article. I highly, highly, highly encourage you to not just read it, but reread it, study it, highlight things, write notes in the margins. Uh, I think there's a lot to be had from this. And the more you go back to it, the more you're going to get out of it. And then lastly, use it as a mechanism to uh, to train your sailors. I, I really believe that there's a lot to be had here. Just so everyone knows, I changed a lot of pronouns to be more current as far as uh, because I, I and I probably missed a few and I apologize, but they, everything was his, he, that kind of thing, because it was written in 1916. But uh, or even before that, for all I know, I, I 
need to get an older Blue Jackets manual to see if it was in an edition prior to 1916 because the article I read, the title is 1918, and that's what it's referenced as in the Teaching to the Creed topic, uh, which was uh, Credibility of a Chief versus an E7. Um, but it the 1916 article is exactly the same, so it's probably in some previous editions and either a similar version or exactly the same. Um, I, I again really love the article. I'm glad I got to share it. It's going to be a, a, a part of uh, the teaching to the creed curriculum that I'm going to release as soon as I can fit it. I got a couple more to record and then I got a ton of editing to do, um, but I'm really excited to uh, provide everyone with that as a supplement to the teaching of the creed uh, curriculum that's going to get facilitated during the chief season because it's a requirement. Um, but also, I mean, if anybody needs like a remote facilitation of it, hopefully that it can be that mechanism as well. Um, and that's it. I, if you, if you want to reach out to us and discuss any of this, ask any questions, the link to the article on it's on goatlocker.org. I will change the link at some point because there's a lot of spelling errors and some other weird stuff in there. Um, I will transcribe this onto the website at some point. I'll change the link to the website and you'll be able to find it on the website soon. But uh, until then, I'll, the link to the the article, if, if I don't already have it on the website by the time this, this drops, uh, you will be able to find it on Goat Locker or just Google it. Um, but the link is in the description to get to the article and use it for whatever training uh, your heart desires. But I love it and I would love to discuss it with you. As always, if you need anything from us, hit us up. Don't give up the ship podcast at gmail.com. You can Facebook message me. Don't give up the ship podcast or you can hit us up on Instagram or Reddit at DGS podcast or the U and R DGS podcast on Reddit. You can get on the, uh, the R DGS podcast uh, forum and discuss all the episodes with us. Uh, it's, it's always on there. It's in our Navy and new to the Navy and military and all those, all those subreddits. Uh, we, I post them in there to try to stimulate a discussion and just let everybody know that the episodes up. So, uh, engage in whatever way is best for you. If you would be so kind, like share, subscribe, review, do all the things that helps us get the word out. Uh, the more exposure, the better people know that the tool exists and then they can use podcasts like this to train their reliefs. And that's it. That's what I got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't give up the ship. <laughs>